0: I want to talk about process reform, but I want to do it in the context of what I call the Congress having the ability to do fundamental work. And I'm reminded of a story of a merchant ship that sailed the high seas for years and years and years, and every day, as part of his routine, the ship's captain, who had been on the boat forever, would begin his day by crawling out of his bunk, going over to a locker with his first mate, um, observing, and he would open this locker and pull a, a little metal strong box out of the bottom of the locker, and he had a key around his neck. And he would take this key and he would open this box, and he would look inside, peer inside for just a moment or two, then he would close the box, put it back in the locker, and then he went around and did his business the rest of the day. This happened year, day after day, week after week, year after year. Years of this routine, the first mate observing every move. And then, as time marches on, all <coughs> uh, the ship's captain is on his deathbed. One morning, time has come, Captain passes him. What do you think the first mate did? He got that key. And he walked over to that locker. He took out that strong box, curious as to what was inside that box. So curious, he just had to know. He opened the box, and inside the box, you might be surprised to know that there was a three-by-five card that had these words on it. Port is left. Starboard is right. And part of my frustration, having been here eight years, is that the Congress of the United States has failed to understand the most fundamental of its duty. Just as that captain had to be reminded every day of some of the basic truths of seamanship. Just the fundamental things that you should already know and be able to do every day in your routine, the Congress of the United States has gotten away from that. There will be nobody in this room that could stand up here and make an articulate debate over whether or not the Congress of the United States has been able to accomplish its mission with regard to budgets and appropriations, at least in the time that I've been here, and I can only speak for the last eight years. Nobody can do that because it hasn't happened. And what's worse about it is that the majority of the House of Representatives have come either with my class or after my class, and so their concept of normal is what we are doing now. And it is far from the uh, the ideas and the, and the processes that were in place for many, many years that seemed to work for our country for a while. But in the contemporary political climate, they just don't work anymore. So we have to do something fundamental to change the way we do our business. And that's why the Joint Select Committee was formed. 16 members, eight Senate. Eight House, four each Republican and Democrat on both sides, with two co-chairs, tasked with, with coming up with a program that would actually provide for a process and provide the proper motivations for Congress to execute the process so that we can at least take off the table the issues surrounding the most fundamental of our duties, budgets and appropriations. Now, that may sound pretty simple <laughs> to you and pretty easy, but it's very difficult. And I'm reminded that whenever there's a, a you know, if it's the old 10-foot wall, 11-foot ladder. If you put a process in place, there's always going to be some kind of a workaround. Congress will find a way not to be able to do its work for a variety of reasons, some political, some otherwise, but always find a way around this thing. So we've got to find a process that actually can lead to budgets, lead to appropriations, and do it in a timely way so that by the first of October every year, or whatever the first of the fiscal year is, that the last thing you're having to worry about is whether we're gonna shut the government down, or whether we're gonna be operating on some kind of a continuing resolution or another omnibus package. So that's the, the, the charge for the Joint Select Committee. No question what the most important duty we have, aside from what is called for in the Constitution, and that's protections the people, national security. Uh, But one of the most fundamental of our duties entrusted to us is the power of the purse, and we have just uh, moved uh, so far away from a reliable and uh, accurate process that we are just non-functional for the most part anymore. So having a functioning framework by which to decide budgetary outcomes Um, should not be a partisan issue, and it should be something that the two sides should be able to come together on and find common ground and be able to present it back to our respective colleagues uh, for their approval. I have, um, I, I can't predict the outcome. I'm pretty confident we will do something. Something could be really bold something could also be just a step in the right direction or somewhere in between. We have members of our committee that wanna be bold, and we have some members of the committee that probably are not too predisposed to doing anything too radical. Um, I come from the camp of I wanna move the ball in the right direction, and if this becomes a multi-year process, we're supposed to report out by November, but if this becomes a process, that needs to start with a major first step, kind of like North Korea, and move in the right direction over time, then so be that. I can't predict that outcome. One of my biggest challenges as the co- one of the co-chairs of the Joint Select Committee is keeping our members focused on process and not necessarily with outcomes. It's the process that will drive the outcome, not vice versa. So that's, uh, that's one of my biggest challenges. Here are some things that we seem to be coalescing around. Uh, biennial budgeting. Now when you kind of throw that up, there's, that gets a lot of support from a lot of people on the authorizing side. It is um, not so popular with people that do appropriations. And I'm an appropriator, so I think I can speak uh, to the issue. Um, Who truly believes, given the rules of the Senate the way they are, that we're ever going to see a situation in the contemporary climate where we get 12 appropriation titles on an annual basis through the Senate? I I know of nobody that really believes that that's going to happen. Now, it may happen this year because they're going to give up their August recess and work on appropriations, but maybe we'll see that happen, but I'd rather doubt it um so what to do in order to be able to pass budgets and the budget and the appropriations uh, languages are inextricably linked and should we bifurcate and and do biennial appropriations as well still to be determined but I do think we're coalescing around the notion that we're going to be in a biennial budget uh, atmosphere uh, at, at the end of at the end of this cycle. whether we do, Annual appropriations or biennial appropriations still remains to be seen. I can make an argument that one of, our, one of our most important duties as appropriators is to provide oversight for the bureaucracies that are spending the money. And after we write appropriations bills, sadly, a lot of the appropriations work is over. And there's not a lot of oversight that happens after, that, after those appropriations bills are passed. I personally think that if you did a biennial appropriations process, it would strengthen your ability to provide oversight uh, to the to the process of, of spending taxpayer money. And if the appropriations committees would spend that time, if they're in a biennial appropriations, if they would take that that extra year to do better oversight, I think it would be a a, a very nice uh, outcome for the Congress. So we haven't. We haven't arrived at our decisions yet. Um, Biennial uh, budgeting is certainly one of those. What to do with the debt ceiling is certainly going to be in play. How to handle the budget resolution (coughs) is a subject of discussion. So we're in the process of kind of moving through all of those discussion topics without those conversations having matured yet. So that's kind of where we are in the process. Again, we've got some more hearings coming up. We've got member day on June 27th. And we will take those uh, that information and then probably do some small working groups uh, to try to put pen to paper and get a legislative text out so that we can <coughs> kind of move toward the finish line uh, before our statutory deadline of November 30th. So that's pretty much it on the Joint Select Committee. And uh, when we do Q&A, if any of you have any specific questions that I can answer, i certainly want to do that. Um, as for me, uh, I've got that issue, but I've, I've also got my chair of house budget uh, in, in play right now. We're still trying to massage the 2019 budget resolution. I personally think that it's something we should not forget, uh, even though my friends in the Senate side have uh, have at least telegraphed that they're not anxious to do a budget resolution this year. We got our baseline report from CBO a little late, so it's driving that uh, budget resolution a little bit later in the process if we'd like. Plus, I've got a few members that I've got to corral. Um, uh, it should be noted that in the original, uh, or in the Omni, uh, I, 14 of my 22 members voted against the Omni, and so if we deem as we have the uh, top line numbers, the 302As for the, uh, from the omnibus package for the appropriators to write to this year, I've automatically got a problem. So. Uh, How do we sweeten the pie for them so that we can get their attention and and their vote? Uh, I can only lose three, and where do we go from here? So we're beginning to shore that up, and hopefully we'll have in the next few days a little more clarity on exactly what we're going to do with the 2019 budget resolution. I think it's important that the Congress of the United States do its budget, uh, establish its vision for spending, and... uh, uh, and, and not overlook that fundamental role that the Congress has. So I'm going to pause right there, be happy to take any questions, um, and go in any direction you'd like to go. It doesn't have to be related to budget. It can be related to virtually anything. So no holds barred. Mm-hmm. Mr. Like Chairman, thank you. Craig, you did such a bang-up job on your intro. You can have the first or the last question. I'll defer. Okay. okay. Yes, sir. Oh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, for um, your excellent talk and also your, your service on the Budget Committee and the Appropriations Committee. Eight years ago, the Republican mantra, particularly in 2007, like the first one of President Obama, was deficits truly do matter. We're spending ourselves to oblivion. And since that time, it's almost doubled. And with no end in sight, we had the Congressional Budget Office scoring a few weeks ago, which looks like a fairly realistic assessment. Particularly, we're worried about rising interest rates and the amount of money that in 10 years might be going to pay off the national debt. Within the caucus itself, and probably also within your populist you know, constituency, is there any alacrity involved? Have people are beginning to recognize this, or have they diminished this? Have they become inured to the fact that the numbers just keep going up higher? And so far, basically, it's like jumping off an airplane. We're still alive, but eventually, we're going to fall. Well, that's a great question. Um, and, and I don't know that I'm I'm qualified to speak for the, for the caucus. I, I would say this. We all talk a great game. We, we all hit on the right themes. We got a spending issue. It's a spending-driven debt crisis. It's it's not related to anything other than spending. We've over-promised our country. I think where we uh, fall woefully short is um, Dealing with the inconvenient truth of the true drivers of the deficit and debt. We spend a lot of time beating ourselves up over um, issues like the omnibus package, continuing resolutions, discretionary spending, defense and non-defense. Uh, we, we seem to have a wage a lot of battles over that, forgetting that the real money is on the mandatory side. And nobody ever really wants to do more than just give lip service to it. And so at the end of the day, we have to recognize that we have overpromised our country to its people. And that we are going to have to make some fundamental and, in some cases, pretty drastic reforms to these social safety net programs that are the true drivers of the deficits and the debt. And, um, I mean, it's 70% of federal spending right now. And in the 10-year window that we are marking budgets to, it goes to almost 80% of federal spending. And I think I can make the argument that the sooner we deal with it and confront (laughs) it, it's kind of like dealing with a major illness. You put it off. And, and the situation is going to get worse, and, and, the, and the condition is going to, uh, going to eventually drive you to where you have no option but to do something very draconian, which we would all like to avoid. So this is a, a very slow-moving train wreck that is not going to end well if the Congress doesn't decide that we have to fundamentally reform the programs for long-term sustainability. Nobody is talking about doing away with Social Security or Medicare or Medicaid, but we do have to look at those principal drivers of the deficits and the debt and reform those for long-term sustainability. I find it incredible that we can't say today with clarity that a young person leaving high school today, we, we can't tell them what their social safety net program is going to look like when they turn 60 or 70 years old. Can't tell them. And if we try to tell them that it's Medicare, then we would be lying to them. Because mathematically, actuarially, those programs will not be around in, in that length of time. So we have to do some fundamental reforms to it. But it's called third rail politics for a reason. You touch it, you die, politically. And I think the time is now for Congress to step up to the plate and say, look, don't shoot the messenger, but this is where we are. And these are the things that we have to do. And if we're not willing to do those, then we have to accept the fact that eventually the markets are going to make these decisions for us. And I'd like to be able to avoid that. We, we, like I say, we spend a lot of time beating ourselves up over discretionary spending. It's about 30% of the pie and getting smaller. And then to my friends on the discretionary side of the argument, I would say to them, DOD and others, <clears throat> the principal <coughs> uh, beneficiaries of it, <coughs> is that they are getting squeezed. The more we spend on the mandatory side, the less we have for them. And at the end of the day, we end up in some pretty bitter fights on the floor uh, regarding the priorities of Congress on the discretionary side. So we have to fix it. And uh, it didn't get this way overnight. We're not gonna satisfy it overnight. But trillion dollar deficits and a 21 trillion dollar debt is uh, not a fine wine. It's not gonna age well. And uh, if we don't do this sooner than later, Um, we're going to be forced into some decisions uh, long after people like me are gone from Congress uh, that are not going to be very pleasant to deal with. So it is what it is. We just have to have the courage to call it the way we see it. Now, when I go home, and when I spend time in my town hall meetings, I put the charts up, and I just say, this is where we are. So please don't, don't get all upset that I'm having to talk about this, but as a country, if we care about our kids... If we care about our grandkids, and really, if we care about our grandkids, grandkids, then we have to be willing to do some of these things now. And if we don't, then then God help us, because this is going to get progressively worse. And then I fear, if we accelerate this economy, and I believe we will, we're going to push interest rates higher. And if you normalize interest rates on the national debt. Uh, you make the national debt, or, or at least our debt service payment, you make that one of the biggest line items in the federal budget. It's a pretty significant one. Now, um, hold on. If we normalized interest rates, this uh, uh, this debt service would, be, uh, would rival, in many cases, what we spend on national security, and I, I fear that.